Our scripture reading is from Psalm 73. Give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but put an end you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. We are in a series... If you um, have been around, you, note, you know that a series walking through the Psalms uh, began a few weeks ago with this um, note that with God we need to find our voice. We looked at Psalm 15 and learned about prayer and we find a voice and that's what the Psalms all are. It's a, it's a way to have this dialogue conversation with a God who speaks and a God who hears. We find our voice, uh, and then we took a look at Psalm 42 and 43 where we find our way to God in the midst of circumstances that would be despairing. Um, then we talked about and found how do we find our way to trust and to help, and then last week to joy. And I mention all of those not simply to get us all on the same page once again, 
But all of those things are always a need and no, nowhere more so than the psalm that we step in today where we're asking the question, how do we find our way to wisdom? You see, that's an issue because you can't live very long in this world and not experience some crisis in spiritual confidence every once in a while. That's true for all of us in the room. A crisis in spiritual confidence comes along. It's even the most mature believers will tell you that there are times when the question arises, is God running this world the way the Bible says he is? Because when I try to square the two, they don't always mesh. The challenges that create that crisis come in lots of different forms. It might be bad news that creates a crisis, physical or emotional or health-wise. It might be just disaster that occurs. It may simply be that life has not worked out the way you had hoped. Does any of that sound familiar? You know a little bit of those circumstances, uh, a spiritual crisis of confidence. You know, maybe, um, maybe we don't call it that, but we do know that sometimes in the life that we live in this world, it's, it's, it's required of us somehow to either give up or get a grip to either cave in or to get a hold, a foothold. That's the picture that we find in this psalm is, is someone who was troubled and his, his, he said it, he was about to stumble and about to slip, about to lose his footing. That's the, that's the circumstance that we often find ourselves in where, where things begin to spiral downward. You know that one? Circumstances are hard, and then as we try to come to terms with it, we spiral downward. One thing piles on another. It's what um, some of us heard from some material put together by Ken Sandy recently, that, um, that our emotions are just flooded. <laughs> we're thinking in some direction. We may be feeling something, and then we're flooded with emotions, and things kind of get out of perspective. And that's really what we see going on here in this psalm is uh, a man tells the story of his circumstances, what he observes, and the spiraling downward. He needs, in that instance, what the Bible calls wisdom, what we need in those spiraling circumstances. We need wisdom. It's, uh, it's something important. The Bible tells us where to get it. It says, get wisdom, prize her highly, and she will exalt you. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains faith. Whoever finds wisdom finds life and finds favor from the Lord. What is wisdom, though? It would be wise for some of you to drink more water today than you had planned in this kind of climate. But we're not talking about necessarily that kind of wisdom. When the Bible talks about wisdom, it's beyond that. It doesn't exclude that, but it goes beyond it. And I like this definition that I've run across. It's a practical knowledge of how to attain true and lasting happiness. Practical knowledge about how to attain true and lasting happiness. It begins with the fear of the Lord, 
and consists in humbly hearing and doing God's will perceived both in Scripture and in the unique circumstances of the moment. So wisdom in different places calls for different things. The question is, where do we get that wisdom? Or can you get there from here? (laughs) When the circumstances are what they are, sometimes we think, no, wisdom is not attainable. I just, I need survival. But there's a picture here. And what I want you to hear, the big point of this sermon is this. That wisdom is beyond our reach until God grants it. But it is closer than it appears most of the time. And it is always available for those who seek it. What we find here in this passage is fascinating. It's someone who's spiraling downward. But he finds a way forward and he shows us how. He starts with the conclusion, and then he proceeds to show us how he got there. That's what verse 1 is. That's the conclusion. Verse 1, you heard it. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who appear in heart. That's his conclusion. And then he shows us how he got there. We're, talking, we're going to look at this, uh, just the problem that he states the remedy that he employs, and the results that follow with the time that we have here. But first, who is this? Asaph is his name. That's in your Bibles. Didn't make the bulletin, but a psalm of Asaph. This is the first of one of 12. It's the first of 11 in a row, then Psalm 50. But 12 of those 150 psalms belong to Asaph. His words or his paraphrase of David or some combination, he was the music leader. He was... He served alongside King David, and there was a Levitical singer at the dedication of Solomon's temple, probably the same Asaph. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles 5. He was a religious pro. (laughs) He did this for a living. He was in and out of the temple. He knew the lyrics. He knew the verses. He knew the story of redemption that was sung and played week after week. Religious pros, you see, are not immune, maybe even prone to slippery theological footing. Because that's what he's talking about here. It's not just that his feet had slipped, but it's the, it's, he's, he's landing on theologically soft turf as opposed to bedrock. And how did he get there? Well, that's the problem. The problem that he watches, the problem he sees, and he says it in verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's watching what's going on around him, and he's watching this unfold, and he's beginning to wonder, why is this? I thought this was a different story, but the story I've stepped into, it's the wicked who are winning. The the ungodly are carrying the day. And in, a, in verses we don't have time to unpack, in, in about eight verses, it just snowballs this vivid picture of what he's seeing. And the, and the conclusion that he reaches is a frightening one to him. And it may be and should be to us. He's... he's He's spiraling downward, and what he needs, 
when you, when you put your foot on gravel instead of rock, and you've, you've done this, some of you have done a, headed up the, the mountain and, and the, the hill was steeper than you thought and that's, that place where you planted your foot was not as solid as it once looked and something gave way or it was gravel instead of rock and you begin to spin and when you begin to tumble backwards, what you need is something to plant your foot on, something that's rock-like, something that will stop the downwardness of your propulsion at the moment, or it's going to be a bad story. You're looking for something, something to hold on to or something to plant your foot on, and when you find it, you've stopped the downwardness, and now you've got your balance, and you can begin to move forward again. So for Asaph, what was it? He finally got his foot on something that he could work from when he turned to God in prayer. Well, where's that in the passage? Well, it's the whole passage. The whole thing is a prayer. He begins to, to get his feet underneath him when he stops where he is and prays. Which, by the way... It's probably a good thing for all of us, regardless of how nice our circumstances are or how difficult they are, in the midst to stop and say, wait, God. There's where Asaph and where we really get our feet on something worthwhile and something that will hold us. When we turn our gaze to him, when we've turned our gaze to the one who made this world, even when it's crying out, why, God? So many of the Psalms are that, right? How long, oh God? And one of the things you see in those is God doesn't always give us the answer to our questions, but he always gives us himself. And that's a little bit of what you see going on here in this one. By the way, <clears throat> the perplexity that, that marked this man's life that you can begin to resonate with a little bit, being perplexed and doubting some things, are not necessarily in and of themselves wrong or bad. Paul says, I was perplexed, but not in despair. And the trick is to be honest with the questions that we have, the issues that we're dealing with, and have a foothold in such a way that we don't spiral out of control, we don't make things worse than they are, but that we've got a place from which to work and a place from which to think and to live his first foothold was, getting, was turning to God in prayer, and his weariness led him forward. You see, he was perplexed. He got his foot on something solid, and he was still perplexed. Perplexity didn't go away when he started to pray. It happens as the story continues. Aren't you interested? But it didn't go away as soon as he stops to pray, which is why a lot of my prayers are what they are. And maybe a lot of the ways your prayers sound the way they do. They're perplexing. We're perplexed. But there's something that we can learn as we keep pressing through that perplexity. And as we do, we learn again from our friend here. That's the problem. The remedy begins when he gets a foothold but it doesn't really resolve itself. There's no real remedy until three things happen. The first one is this in verse 15. Look at verse 15 with me. He said, if I had said, he's laid out this uh, not so pretty picture 
And then he's, he's about to reach some conclusions about it and some resolve. And then he says, but if I had said that, if I had lived that, if I had carried that forward, if that was going to be the song of my life or the refrain of my song, then what damage would that do to the generation of your children? You know what that means is he recognized that if he goes that way, he's going to take others with him. That's pretty insightful, first of all, to be able to recognize if I go this way, as much as I believe it and as hard as it is, I will take others with me, and I'm not sure that that's what I want to do. So that was a remarkable personal insight that his dilemma, that his response to the circumstances was something he didn't want to use to crush others. He said, I don't want to go there. That was a part of the remedy when he recognized that there are consequences. And that's a good wake up for me. Wake up. Wake up for me to, to recognize that if I get out on a limb theologically or, or, or in my experience, it, it may have consequences. And I need to do this time out and to reassess and see what effect is my words or my position or my, even my attitude having on others around me. That's a good lesson right there, but that's not the lesson. He considers his consequences, but then in verse 16, we really begin to see where this story turns and where the remedy takes shape and where, where we belong. He says in verse 16, I thought how to understand this, and it seemed to me a wearisome task. He's exhausted. Until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. He's talking actually about a sanctuary. He's, he's talking about something that had four walls and a ceiling and a floor and seats. He's talking about the one in Jerusalem, most likely. The temple. You see, that's where he did his music. And when I came back, he says, to where I do my thing, something occurred. The temple, or in our case, these four walls, stand for something. And there's some things that occur when you make your way, after you have finally found that parking place, made it through one of these doors and into this room, there are some things that occur in this room that Asaph is pointing us to. What are the things that occur? We'll come back to that in a second. But there's things that occur in this facility that can occur other places. You can encounter God walking through Warner Park. I've done that. Or floating down the Caney River. I did that a long time ago. You can encounter God there, but there's certain things that occur when the things that, that occur in this room happen that are transforming, that are forming and transforming. So what happened? What was it that happened to Asaph? Did he have a vision like Isaiah? You remember that one, Isaiah 6, where, where, where Isaiah walks in and he sees a spiritual reality that he had not seen before. And he was dropped to his knees. Is that what happened? Well, we don't know. But whatever happened... 
he was able to see some things, and he, he says in the, ne- in the rest of that verse, he began to understand some things, to rethink some things, to see the rest of the story that he had not seen before or heard or forgotten. But, you know, it's not just what happened. It's what made him go. There's another question. What was it that made him go to the sanctuary? It's essentially the fact that God brought him there. There might have been a lot of reasons that he made the trek. He may have been, well, that's the place I know. That's where my music occurs. I know the, I know the territory, and it's familiar. But ultimately, God was the one who drew him, who brought him, who pulled him to that place where those things would occur. How did you get here today? Oh, I know most of you drove. A few of you walked. But what got you here? Same thing that got Asaph there. God brought you. God may have used your parents to get you here today. (laughs) But God brought you here for his purposes and our good. It's what we call God's restoring grace. He, He meets us in the brokenness of our lives and he pulls us into a place where where we will be met and formed and shaped and taught and learn to order our loves again. That's how he got there. And once he did, and the remedy that unfolds is in God's presence, in that worshiping congregation, his thinking that was partial was filled out. He began to see things, and maybe it was remembering some things that he'd forgotten. Frankly, that's what happens to me pretty much every Sunday. I remember some things that I've forgotten. It could be re-remembering. It could be that he saw things that he had never seen. What he began to see there was the rest of the story in which his life fit, in which the ungodly fit, this bigger story. Um, it's a little bit like he could figure some things out with his, own, with his own cortex, the things between his ears. His brain could reason through some things, but couldn't get to the ultimate things, which is why some of the most brilliant people in this world have lives that, are, that, that disintegrate underneath them. They may know their way around the laboratory or the library, but they don't know life. It's the difference between rational thinking and what we might call spiritual thinking that is not irrational. It's more than rational. It takes what we can figure out with our minds like it's a good idea to drink water today. And it adds to the rest of the story that life and joy is found in something besides a bottle of water or a bottle of whatever. There's a spiritual kind of knowing that some of you have tasted and most of you have an idea of or a longing for. 
a spiritual knowing that's bigger than just the practical things of how do I do this or how to do that, but what are the practical things that lead me to a life of joy and happiness? There's wisdom. It's where our thinking gets fleshed out and filled out in, in, three, different, in three different directions. Uh, it's the ungodly first. He begins, we, we, we didn't have time, and you can look at it later, but all of that description of the ungodly, and he sees them, they're flaunting and they're mocking, and then he sees, oh, yeah, but they will get their due. There is no mocking of God that goes unaddressed by the God who made this world. He begins to see that, that what he had seen was only part of the story. It wasn't the rest. And he's reminded, oh, yes, okay, I've been flooded with my concerns about the ungodly and their prosperity and their mocking, but also I'm learning, I'm remembering that justice delayed is not necessarily justice denied. There will be a day, he talks about, where things are made right and things that were wrong will be addressed. He even sees and says that the prosperity of the wicked is like a dream. <laughs> that's what he's saying in verse 20. The prosperity of the wicked, that's like a dream. And then, you know, you've had that dream you wake up from and you're, oh, glad that was a dream. And that's what he's saying here. The prosperity of the wicked in this world is a dream. They're living on borrowed time and he's beginning to see that, that there is another day and there's a rest of the story. So he, his thinking is straightened out when it comes to the ungodly and the prosperity of them, the flaunting of their, or their arrogant flaunting. He begins to see that. But he also begins to see himself differently. And someone said, rightly, I think, there is no growth, no, no real growth until I've become ruthlessly honest about myself. I found that to be helpful. Maybe you will too. There's no growth until I've learned to be ruthlessly honest about myself. And how did he do that? He, he said, formerly, I, I, was, I had concluded, I was about to conclude that I had kept my hands clean and my heart pure in vain. Wasted. I'd wasted my life. I've spent my life on a fairy tale. You ever think that? I've wasted my life pursuing something that may not be true. Asaph says, and then I caught myself. And I realized the, the honest story is I was like an animal before you, God. I was embittered. I was like a brute. I was ignorant before you. Verse 21 is a fascinating little past verse. He says, my soul was embittered when, my, when I was pricked in my heart. But if you pay close attention to the grammar, that language is actually using verbs that are reflexive. Meaning, translated, it could be, I soured my heart. I did that. I made matters worse. I exaggerated the problems. And I'm going to guess a lot of you know that, like I do. Something that might be not so good, making it worse, turning it over, imagining the downfall and the worst-case scenario, making things matter, the matters worse than they are. 
it's a picture of how he's learning to, to recognize that there's something inside of me that's the big determinant. I'll give you an example. There could be two people. They could be in the same family. It could be a husband and a wife. And the, they're looking at the same circumstances. They're looking at the same family budget. And one is soured and worried and bitter. And the other is calm and composed. Is that just a personality difference? Well, it may be. It may be the way two personalities approach the same thing. But it may be that there's something inside that is determined by each of us about how we're going to live and face the same face circumstances. And I say that because Paul said, I learned to be content. It wasn't his nature. It wasn't a gift even. It was something that he learned to be having a bigger picture of the circumstances at hand, he learned something that he needed and that was life-giving. So he had a straight, his thinking straightened out when it comes to the ungodly, to himself, but then ultimately to God. Formerly, what was he thinking of God? Where are you, God? What are you doing? Why aren't you doing? Are you indifferent, apathetic? No is right. <laughs> and then his view changed when he began to see, oh, there's more to the story and God is not ambivalent. He's not indifferent. He's not inactive. He is just. That there is a destiny for the wicked. He is gracious. There is a future for the believer. But ultimately he says, God is good. You remember verse 1? That's his conclusion. God is good. In the midst of it, in the face of this, God is good. In the face of the prosperity of the wicked, God is good to Israel. So here's the test. In the face of all of the calamity or the things that would create a, a crisis in spiritual confidence in your life, can you say today, God is good. And you don't say that because the pastor said it. You don't say it because it's the right answer. You say it because God has brought you to that place. Into his four walls, into his presence. Reminding you of something bigger than the circumstances that are at hand. Reminding you of the rest of the story. Reminding all of us of how this plays out. Sinclair Ferguson said Asa's problem <clears throat> was that he viewed life through the wrong end of the telescope. <laughs> and man seemed so big and God seemed so small. The God who said, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. Declares, he declares that to be the case. And here's what happens. Worship, you see, when, when, we, when we begin to think right about God and we gather in worship, it puts God at the center of our vision. When you left here last week, God was probably near the center of your vision for most of you. You get distracted. I know that. Some of you are distracted now. But God's at the center of a That's what happens in worship. 
And then there's Monday. And for some of us, it doesn't take that long for something else to occupy the center. But that's what happens. And when God occupies the center, then we begin to see things as they are. Then we begin to see the rest of the story. When his glory breaks in, something happens. It, it, worship delivers us from a distorting self-absorption. You could call that wisdom. It delivers us from a distorting self-absorption. It provides true scales on which to weigh the experiences of life. Worship does that. And it looks like, the, here's three things that it looks like, and this will end with this. It ends up being a longing for God. Wisdom longs for God. When we begin to see things as they really are, when we begin to see Him for who He is, we long for Him. Some of you came into the Christian faith hoping this was true, wondering if it's true. And we circle around it week after week, declaring, yes, this is true. And when we begin to see things and we begin to see God for who he is, we delight in nothing else. Oh, there are plenty of delights that come our way. But as we were reminded, I think it was last week, the delight that we have, the joy that we have can be in the good thing that God gives as long as it is also a delight in him, the giver. There's a longing for God that we see the psalmist talk about here. He, he, there's nothing else that he wants. There's where wisdom has broken in. He's begun to see things. He's begun to live well and to think well. And, I, and I, God, I, I see the prosperity of the wicked, but it is you that I want. It is you that I long for. Let them have their way. Let them have their day because it's only a day. Because this day, I want you more than I want justice. That will come, but today I want you. Augustine talked about the fact that in worship, our, our disordered loves are put in order again. And that's what we see here. If God doesn't capture your affection or fill your heart with longing and desire, something else will. But here it is. Longing for God and then a satisfaction with God. There's nothing else required. There's no missing parts. It's not God and his provision plus something else. It's God, I'm satisfied there. You hold my right hand. You are my portion. You are all that I need. A longing for God, satisfaction with God leads to, and with this we'll finish, a resolve. That's what verse 28 is. It's a resolution. It's a resolve to do two things, to take refuge in God, resting in God, the rock of my heart. That's, that's what he's talking about, what he's been longing for. He's been looking for something to put his feet on. And that's the translation that most versions miss. It's the rock of my heart. There is solid ground that we take refuge in him, standing on him and, and clothed in his provision. That's the refuge to rest in God, take refuge in God. And then the last line of the psalm is to tell others about his works. To take refuge in God and to tell others about God and his works. His works? Yeah, the God whose works included that tabernacle where he would dwell with his people in the wilderness saying, set this up. This is where I will meet with you. Within the walls of this tent, I will meet with you. And there will things occur in that tent 
that will change you. That eventually became a permanent tabernacle in the form of a temple on a hill in Jerusalem. But a God whose works included not just a tent or a tabernacle or a temple, but who would provide a permanent sanctuary. And it's not on the corner of Third and Church. The sanctuary that Asaph went to, the sanctuary that God pulled him to and pulls you to today, is the one who became a sanctuary, the one who became refuge, the one who became the wisdom of God. In the ancient Near East, there was only one building built on the top of, uh, of a hill, and it was the temple. And that's where wisdom takes up her residence. You see, it's in Christ. The fullness of, of God's wisdom is ours in him and in him alone. If you're looking for wisdom, there's one place to look. It's not the library. It's in the face of Jesus Christ. The one who was perplexed himself. Really? Well, remember the garden? Perplexed in the garden. says, Father, there's got to be, or is there another way? Whose perplexity did not lead him to despair, but led him to fulfillment. Who said, no, your ways are right. You are good to Israel. And I trust you, Father, and I step forward into the fulfillment of what you've called me and I've agreed to be a sanctuary, a safe place. Because Jesus kept his hands clean, his heart pure, not in vain as Asaph had feared, and maybe some of you do. Jesus kept his hands clean and his heart pure, not in vain, but in fulfillment of a promise that God made to remember his promise to send a redeemer to rescue a runaway people, to restore broken lives and to renew all things. That's the God whose works Asaph talks about. And he calls us into that as well. To remember that the one who was made far off to bring you near, where Asaph says, that's where we belong. It is good for me to be near to God. We are near to him in Christ, our wisdom. The one whom, of whom another religious professional who knew Psalm 73 better than you and I ever will, Paul said, Christ, in whom are held all the treasures of wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we pray because that's where we get our footing. We pray to set ourselves in your presence and on solid ground where we can then begin to rethink the matters of our lives 
in light of the story of redemption, in, in light of eternal truths, in light of the fact that justice will come, the fact that you are engaged, you're not aloof, and you are full of wisdom that you give to us for those who look. Oh, Lord, we need wisdom. We need Christ. We thank you that in Christ we have that wisdom. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.